Thank you. <laughs> you pray with me just for a second. Lord, we thank you that there is one who is a living hope and that what we face is not a vain and empty future, but that our lives have eternal significance. We are eternal beings and we are made by you to know you and to glorify you. And so we pray that even in the foolishness of the preached word through a weak vessel like myself, Lord, that you would point us to Christ, help us to once again be reminded of the almost incomprehensible ways of you, our God, that we cannot fathom how you work and the way in which you work and the the means by which you work, but we thank you that ultimately all these things are going to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We pray that we may see these things more clearly, even this day, in Christ's name. Amen. A Japanese airliner sustained some damage to the tail end of that plane. A repair was made, but the repair was not done correctly. And seven years later, that airplane, a Boeing airplane, was packed with over 500 passengers and 15 flight crew. And that plane took off from the Tokyo airport on a domestic flight going to Osaka, another island in Japan, city there. And about 12 minutes into the flight, they had reached their normal coasting, or uh, not coasting, the normal flight pattern, height, and elevation altitude that they were meant to travel at. Something seriously went wrong with that plane. The incorrect repair brought about the breaking off of the vertical part of the tail of that plane which meant that the pilot was unable to therefore control the flight of that airplane. They lost all sorts of control over many things, and the cabin also lost pressure. De de uh, there was also a, a very serious uh, decompression on the plane. And then the plane proceeded to go in a bizarre, strange path for another 30 minutes. And obviously everyone on that plane knew they were in serious, serious trouble. The flight did land in a crash land, and only about five people survived the actual uh, initial crash, and then other people died after that. The Japanese airliner, years later in acknowledging the lives of those people who died and perished in that particular 1985 tragedy, put on display some of the notes that were written by people on that flight who knew that they only had a few moments to live. 
One particular note was from a young man, 26 years old. He wrote this, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. Help. I feel sick. I don't want to die. Another gentleman, 52 years of age, wrote a seven-page note to his family. And some of the comments of those seven pages were comments like this. To his children, he wrote, Be good to each other. Help your mother. And then he said this, Dad is very sad, but I'm sure I won't make it. The plane is turning around and descending rapidly. I'm grateful for the truly happy life that I have enjoyed up till now. There are many others, but I won't repeat them. It's fascinating to think about that scenario because it's really the big question that I think about often, and that is what goes on in the mind of a person's moments before they are about to die, when they know they're about to die. What happens if we rephrase that question and think of the person whose life was obviously known to come to an end in very short moments, and that was in what was going on in the mind of Jesus Christ when he was only moments away from his agonizing death? Well, during the first three hours of his actual crucifixion, we know that Jesus had other people on his mind. He spoke to the weeping women. He spoke to the contrite thief beside him. He spoke to John regarding the care of his mother. But then there was a time in which everything became dark for the final three hours of his agonizing suffering upon the cross. And then it became obvious that Jesus was meditating upon Scripture and that he referred to passages in the Old Testament, including but not limited to Psalm 69 as well as Psalm 22. And after you examine carefully, if you'll take the time to read it very slowly and very thoughtfully, after we've looked at Psalm 22, you'll agree with me that Matthew 27 very clearly indicates Jesus had Psalm 22 on his mind. He had memorized it. He was meditating on it. And therefore, I'd like to encourage you to take some time, find your Bibles, open it in whatever tablet form or in your pew Bible or your own Bible, page 663 in the pew Bible. Let's look at Psalm 22. And we'd just like to consider a first part of this psalm, first, first 18 verses. Psalm 22, a psalm of David, and he begins this way, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. Oh, you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. 
In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you did deliver them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him, that is God, rescue him, because God delights in him. Yet you are he who did bring me forth from the womb. You did make me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as ravening, ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you do lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 22, I don't know how much you know about it, but having been written by David, we know it's written about a time frame of about 1,000 B.C. And most commentators who have studied this much more in depth than I ever will have pointed out that there are, at least from what we can tell, there are no scenarios in David's life that would match with the kinds of things that are recorded here in Psalm 22. David refers to things which clearly we understand as you look at it more clearly and you read Matthew 27, it becomes obvious that these are things that are prophetic. That what is being spoken of here by David is he's pointing to the Messiah. The Messiah's death. And Peter, in Acts chapter 2, mentioned that David's writings, he said, being therefore a prophet, David foresaw and spoke of the Messiah. And this is one of those examples in Psalm 22. I'd like to suggest to you that this psalm is rather remarkable. And I'm just going to point out two reasons why it is remarkable this morning as a prophetic psalm. Reason number one is this. Psalm 22 records accurately and miraculously predictions about the specific details of the Messiah's crucifixion. Crucifixion. It's an incredible accuracy. Psalm 22 portrays so many, like numerous specifics pertaining to the brutal crucifixion, which you must understand at the time in which it was written, it was never practiced. 
As a matter of fact, the first recorded instance of a crucifixion we have in history is by the Babylonians about 500 years later. It was never practiced by the Jews, and there's no evidence, again, that it was ever practiced by any other of the nations at that time. But here is David using metaphorical language, describing, you'll notice, the band of evildoers, verse 16. People who are enemies bent on evil. He describes them as very strong people who are determined in their viciousness as lions and the the, the, uh, bulls of Bashan. The fact that they are threatening and they are hungry for blood. You think about the crowd that stood around that cross demanding to have Jesus crucified. And secondly, then he mentions the idea that not only were their heads wagging, which was interesting in verse 7, which is also repeated in Matthew 27, but the allusion to bones that are out of joint in the latter part of verse 14. This, of course, is referring to Jesus, who was nailed till his body would be attached to that cross. But having done so in a lying down position, they lift up that cross And it is therefore slid into a hole that is dug in the ground. And when it is pounded down into that ground, it's no wonder that the joints of the person who has been nailed to that cross are therefore wrenched out of joint in a horrendous and awful way. There's no wonder that it refers to the mislocation of multiple joints and the weariness, the exhaustion. Verse 15 is overwhelming for someone who is undergoing this form of death. Verse 15 refers to dehydration, a thirst that is not being quenched. And anyone who's ever been crucified has spoken and asked for, and they oftentimes would offer drinks to them, knowing that that kind of thirst is hard to describe, the misery that is associated with it. And no wonder Jesus in John 19 said, I am thirsty. In verse 16, you notice that the term dog is used. Obviously a metaphorical allusion to what the Jews would use the term to the person who is a non-Jew, the Gentiles. And clearly it's the Roman soldiers that are referred to in this symbolic way. The latter part of verse 16 refers to obviously being piercing of the hands and the feet. We understand that to be the nailing of Jesus' hands and feet, holding his body up against that cross as a means of, of providing to him the most pain possible for the longest period of time. And then in verse 18, you notice the calloused Roman soldiers are alluded to here who surround the foot of the cross, and here they are gambling over obtaining the clothing of the person who is on that center cross. This detail, a detail about people gambling over clothes is such a small event concerning all the other elements of that form of execution. But, you know, that was noticed by the gospel writers. They didn't miss that detail. That was pointed out as they were even gambling over his clothing, indicating again that they saw that as being a fulfillment of this portion of Scripture in Psalm 22. How could it be that these hardened pagan soldiers could be in on this prophecy? 
If you add up all the details of the things I've just alluded to, all these different predictions that are combined together in Psalm 22, you've got to conclude one thing, and that is this. There's no way these events could have been orchestrated to take place by just some human forces a thousand years before they took place. So what I'm suggesting to you is that you read Psalm 22. You are reading, once again, an example of the theme we find throughout Scripture that God rules over all of history. God's control is so complete, it includes even over Roman soldiers gambling over the garments of Christ. Which, by the way, you think about it, here they are gambling over this garment. It means that Christ, in in His utter shame and nakedness, is exposed to the world, and these men are just playing this little game among themselves. I want us to take a moment and just think about the likelihood of seeing this happen, of a prediction like this, thousand years before, being fulfilled in all the details we're reading about in this particular text. Pastor Ray Stedman years ago tried to capture the wonder, the absolute wonder we should have as we read this text, regarding the prophecy and the unlikelihood of seeing all these things be fulfilled as a result of someone having the ingenious idea of thinking ahead. It's just not going to happen. The kind of time span we're talking about. So in order to try to demonstrate how impossible such a prophecy would be, he uses the analogy of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in November 22nd, 1963. Now, some of us were a little older. How many of us can remember that event? Okay, a whole number of you. Okay, we have some mature people among us today. It was an event, obviously, if you were alive, you wouldn't forget it. But suppose if someone had written a document dated around 963 A.D., And in this document, they predicted that the leader of some great nation would be traveling down a street in a large city in a metal, horseless chariot. And imagine if this leader then would suddenly die from having a small bit of metal penetrate into his brain that had been flying through the air from a long distance away. And in the same document, it would speak of the fact that this this leader, who has been struck by this piece of metal, is a result of a weapon that was made of metal and wood, and it was aimed from a window of a building some distance away. Well, such a document, obviously, if you ever found such a document as that, and you had it, Uh, verified and somehow authenticated as genuinely written over a thousand years earlier, (laughs) that would definitely be on display in some museum as worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Guess what? You'll never find one. But what you're holding in your hands, what we are reading this morning in Psalm 22, is a document that is absolutely amazing in its prophetic accuracy. It is a document that depicts and describes with detail these events that were inconceivable a thousand years before they actually took place. And yet they're written right there. 
And I'm wondering if there's some who today might consider themselves rather skeptical. Maybe you don't voice your skepticism very often, but you're a person who says, ah, I'm not so sure. Let me encourage you, examine the evidence yourself. Read it again, read it again. Go back and read it and find the scholars who can help you in, give insights more into the original languages if that's what you want to do. And then read the Gospels. You read those accounts and you're going to begin to say, you better be careful that you don't dismiss this too quickly and to somehow miss the claims that are being made in this psalm and the implications. Because the accurate prophetic nature of Psalm 22 is not just something we conclude from a 21st century perspective. It's not just because we are sophisticated people, we can figure all this out. No, the first century writers saw that, oh wow, this all fits together. This was all predicted in the Word of God. The prophetic accuracy of Psalm 22 is meant to fill us with a sense of wonder and amazement at God. Because God is being portrayed here as one who is and has sovereign control over all things. All things. Even horrendous acts of evil. I didn't say that God caused all those things. I said he's sovereign over them. I would dare say that on that Good Friday, every one of Jesus' disciples who stood there with their mouth wide open looking at this horrendous sight and of the unspeakable suffering going on, the one that they loved, treated with such indignity and brutality. I would imagine all of them struggled to see that there were any indications that this disastrous tragedy of Jesus' execution was somehow God's will. But I assure you, only a short time later, all of them were convinced. Convinced that Jesus' brutal death and every event surrounding his death was part of the sovereign, all-wise plan of God. I came across recently, I've been reading snippets of a book written by John Piper called Spectacular Sins. I won't take you time to go through all of what he covers here in this book, but what he tries to do is to show that God is active, sovereignly, in the midst of things that are horrendous, spectacular sins in human history, redemptive history. And he says this, on the chapter regarding Jesus' death, he says this, If God were not the main actor in the death of Christ, then the death of Christ could not save us from our sins. We would perish in hell forever. The reason the death of Christ is at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news, is that God was doing it. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you separate God's activity from the death of Christ, you lose the gospel. This was God's doing. It is the highest and deepest point of his love for sinners. 
his love for you. It seems to me that one of the things we see in this text of Scripture is if you're not careful, you're going to miss it. And that is in reading all of the darkened or all of the dark language of Psalm 22. Don't miss out and seeing the love of Christ for you and for me. Also, I'd like to suggest that in reading Psalm 22, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, where am I in this scenario? Where am I in this scene? When all these people are surrounding Jesus and He's suffering in the ways described here with thirst and with misery and hands and feet that have been pierced and all of His joints, bones are out of joint. Where are you in that scenario? Are you the person who is wagging your head? Are you the person who is speaking mockery to Him? Are you the person who is demanding that He be crucified? Essentially, we all have done that in our own way by refusing Him, by rejecting Him, by not yielding ourselves to Him, by our unwillingness to forgive other people, having the, a heart full of murderous anger. It is our sins that put Him on that cross. We are among the people who put the Lord Jesus into that situation of execution. And I'd like to suggest one other thing here in this text before I move on to the next part when we think about this crucifixion. And that is to take a little thought that Tim Keller has developed in his meditation book. I forget what it's called. Uh, sorry, I don't have the name of the book here. Um, he has written a, a meditation, a little devotional from the Psalms. I think he calls it our Lord Jesus' hymn book or something like that, song book. And he has a little brief meditation on every psalm um, of the 150 of them over a period of uh, a year. And so he says this, under this particular reading from Psalm 22, he says this, Jesus' answer to Satan's assaults in the wilderness was to quote passages of Deuteronomy. As Jesus was carrying the cross, he cited the prophet Hosea. And as he was dying in agony, as we've just pointed out here, as he was dying in agony, he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, and Psalm 31, verse 5. Here's his point. Jesus was so saturated by the Word of God that it spontaneously came to mind. And that this, and he says, um, spontaneously came to mind, enabling him to interpret and face every challenge. He says, there are many modern imitations of what Jesus had in being able to deal with difficulties and trials and horrendous situations. Some of us are emphasized in today's world relaxation techniques. Others are into stress management. Others are promoting positive thinking. Others are into mystical forms of contemplation. He says, but nothing can duplicate this. God's Word is what sustained God's incarnate Word, Jesus, when He lived and when He died. So the question is, how well are we handling situations that arise which could be horrifically evil? 
if we have not taken the time to fill our minds, our souls, and our hearts with the rich, deep truths of God's Word, we have nothing to bring to that situation that's going to help us cope with that apart from the Word of God. And sometimes that's all we can do is just pray the Psalms. Just read them aloud as our prayer. Well, there's much more I could say about that point. I need to move on uh, to point number two. Not only do we find in this text of Scripture in Psalm 22 an accurate and miraculous prediction of the specific details regarding the Messiah's crucifixion, but secondly, we also find that Psalm 22 accurately and profoundly records theological insights into the death of the Messiah. As Jesus hung on the cross, he quotes in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words have been called the cry of dereliction or the cry of abandonment, the cry of desolation. Here is a suffering one crying out to God, wanting to know, God, where did you go? Where, why have you left me to die like this? And what is so poignant in this text is that there is no answer given. We are left sort of baffled by the question, how is it that Jesus could be forsaken by God? That's a, that's a deep, deep question. And there are some people who come up with a number of answers. Some people have come up with a conclusion. They've said, well, when Jesus uttered those words, why have you forsaken me? He was angry. He was full of despair. And unfortunately, with such a, 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 an interpretation as that, it clearly would indicate that Jesus was sort of lost all faith and therefore he had sinned. So that can't be that answer. Other people have suggested and theorized that Jesus was merely lonely and that he was going through his dark night of the soul and he just merely felt forsaken by God. But that's not what the text says. <laughs> the text says, why have you forsaken me? So thirdly, we would then understand that Jesus is actually crying out to the Father because he is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in saying that, what he's saying is that he knows he's not fully and forever forsaken. Jesus' cry is not a cry of total despair. It's important that we understand that. But we do know that Jesus' intimacy with his Father was broken. It was interrupted. And this is a profound mystery that is so hard for our puny little minds to comprehend. In some ways you would say it is truly incomprehensible. There's a quote in your notes from Martin Luther who come up with a very helpful phrase. He says, God forsaken by God? Who can understand that? So let me, please hear me saying, this is really something that's not an easy thing to grasp in anybody's mind, much less my own. But what we do know here is that Jesus suffered unspeakable physical pain. That's unquestionable while he's on that cross, but you know, so what? So did the two thieves, one on either side of him. They, 
experienced similar kinds of physical misery and pain and anguish. But notice that Jesus did not cry out from wearing the thorns, My head! My head! My hands! My hands! My feet! My feet! He doesn't cry that. His suffering was more than physical misery. While on the cross, Jesus bore the curse of our sin. Jesus, for a period of time, is cut off from the mysterious wonders of this fellowship that he had enjoyed throughout eternity with the Father. And what Jesus was doing on that cross was remarkably unique. If we don't see that, then we're missing something very important here. Jesus was bearing sin on that cross. Not his own sin, but all the sins of his people. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on the Messiah the iniquity of us all. And this is why the Father was unable to look upon such sin. Unable to look upon the Son of His who bore that sin. One commentator puts it this way, God the Father averted His gaze, turned and stopped looking and have close fellowship with the Son. He had to shield His eyes. He had to turn His back. He had to condemn, reject, curse, and damn that sin. Here is the sinless Son of God, forsaken by God, as He bore the wrath of God for our sin, for my sin, for your sin. And isn't it interesting that in the account of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels, we learn that halfway through His crucifixion, in the middle of the day, 12 noon, it becomes absolutely dark. A darkness that is so dramatic Enshrouding Calvary in the middle of the day. Here is Jesus hung, hung on the cross. And that is a symbol. A symbol of depicting the spiritual reality of the light of God's fellowship has been eclipsed for a period of time. There's something dramatically going on here beyond just what was happening on that cross. Cosmically. And when Jesus quotes Psalm 22.1, He made it clear that He saw the horror unfolding in those moments into God's eternal plan to reconcile sinners unto Himself. Here's a quote again in your notes. The cross was where Jesus was forsaken by God as He bore our hell that we might share His heaven. What a profound mystery. Not only was Jesus abandoned by His friends, as we read in the Scriptures that the sheep were scattered when the shepherd was slain, but the eternal Son of God who enjoyed all this communion with His Father endlessly was at some point on that cross cut off as Jesus experienced this agony of soul. And so with a sense of wonder and amazement, Isaiah 53.10 also speaks to this by saying that the Lord was pleased. It was the Lord's will to crush him, that is the Messiah, putting him to grief. It is Jesus who's cut off from his Father, bearing the defilement and curse of our sin.
How is this to impact us? What do we do with that truth? Well, first of all, it does teach us, does it not? The heinousness, the offensiveness of our sin. How a holy God reacts to that which is so awful and outrageous and offensive. The wages that we deserve for each and every sin we commit is death. Being cut off from God. And the Gospel declares that helpless sinners, guilty sinners like you and me, we are called to repent and to believe on Christ. And Christ died in my place, in your place. And therefore, He bore the wrath of God that was meant to fall upon you, is meant to fall upon me. He was cut off so that we might draw near to Him. He was punished so that we might be completely and fully forgiven. Jesus experienced spiritual death so that you and I might experience the wonders of spiritual eternal life. Does that cause your heart in hearing of these truths and knowing what Christ has done for you and hearing of the heinousness of your sin, does that cause you to treasure and to love and to trust Christ all the more? If not, my friend, I question the condition of your heart. If that does not move you to a sense of wonder and amazement and love, when Christ bore on the cross the torment of hell that you deserved. Let me just make one other helpful point here, and that is to quote John Newton, who wrote a hymn called Approach My Soul, The Mercy Seat. It has numerous stanzas to it, but one of the stanzas is this. This is John Newton. Oh, wondrous love! To bleed and die, to bear the cross and shame. That guilty sinners, such as I, might plead your gracious name. Oh, do you have a love for Christ that begins to well up within you that says, Oh, lessen from me a love for sin, deepen in me. Widen in my heart a greater love for you, Lord Jesus, and your kingdom, and your pursuits, and your will. One final thought I want to make here at this point is that Jesus' cry of dereliction, in which he was alienated from God for a period of time because of our sin, notice it was not completely abandoned because Jesus said right before he died, right before he gave up his spirit, Right before he said, okay, it's now all been completed, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who's he talking to? Father. You see, what he's saying there is that Jesus' fellowship with the Father was restored. And after three days, it's obviously clear that Jesus was raised up from the grave to, in order to show very clearly Jesus is indeed the one who was fully restored to all glory and all honor and all blessing and power and authority. It is all His. And so I would just say to you, my friend, 
any hope we have of full forgiveness, any hope of heaven, any hope of eternal security in Christ, any hope of ever making it in the Christian life and to come out on the other end is all based on Christ. It is all based on the fact that Christ has accomplished it, that he was alienated, now he is restored so that we might join in the benefits of what he has won for us. Oh, wondrous love. Let's celebrate together the wonders of Christ's love around the Lord's table in just a moment. Let's pray. Once again, our Father, we thank you for your word that is not just merely an inspirational book, but it is indeed God-breathed. It is inspired by you. It is the word of God. And we thank you that your word speaks so powerfully today to us today, showing us not only the awful scene of Calvary, And all that Jesus bore upon that cross, which was seen by other people. But Lord, we've been given insights into what no one could even see on that day. Further insights into the realities of his bearing sin upon himself. And we see your sovereign hand at work in all these things. Father, we pray that you might once again humble us, that you might fill us with a sense of amazing wonder, awe, and love for Christ who would give himself for us. How I pray if there's anyone here today, Lord, who's never come to Christ, who's never had eyes to see and appreciate the incredible depths and width and height and and, uh, size of Christ's love for them, Lord, today would you open their eyes to see it. And may we come around your table today as those who are once again responding to your love with expressing our own love to you in full surrender and love and praise. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.